Hi, welcome to the latest in the BGS Classics podcast. This time we're talking about Homer's Odyssey, uh, literary techniques and composition. It's part of the Homeric world. I've got Mr. Watkins with me. Hello. And he's on the line. Uh, we are working from isolation, so we're not physically together, but uh, we are uh, in touch through our uh, through the magic of technology. Uh, so, today's module is looking at the story of the Odyssey. And the most important thing you can do to prepare is to read the prescribed chapters. Uh, Mr. Keane, can you just remind us which chapters pupils must know for their exam? Absolutely. And just to um, make it clear, anyone who's un unsure, anyone who gets confused, um, we may well end up using the words chapters and books kind of uh, interchangeably. But uh, if you think of the Odyssey as a book, then we're going to be looking at chapters. If you think of it as an epic, sometimes we will call it the books of the Odyssey. So therefore, uh, if that confuses you, uh, apologies for that. But we are looking at books 9, 10, 19, 21 and 22. So five books out of the total of 24. Fantastic. So um, this poem, um, and it was a poem originally, uh, is supposed to be by a man called Homer. Who was Homer, Mr. King? Well, so Homer was uh, a master storyteller, uh, as it says in the textbook. Um, there are lots of people who will suggest um, quite convincingly that there was no such one person as Homer. It's all uh, an amalgamation of different characters, different figures um, through the ages telling these stories like around a campfire at a feast or something like that almost like a festival and that it all just got put together in one and we call it Homer because that's what the ancient Greeks called it whatever the case um, clearly that there is a story there in the Odyssey that's a coherent story um, we're probably going to end up just referring to him as if he was one person um, and as if he was what is known as a bard now Mr Watkins is going to just give you a, a quick tip on what we mean when we say bard so a bard is a public storyteller in the ancient Greek world there was a culture of um, paying um, somebody to recite a long poem uh, along to uh, the music of the lyre that's a sort of an ancient greek harp uh, uh, simplest and that would happen as a background as entertainment during long feasts and banquets and so we can talk about um homer's odyssey being part of a bardic tradition that culture of storytelling to music Great. So um, one of the key things about the Odyssey is um, that you might be expecting um, a really ancient story like this, because we, we are talking sort of when it was first composed, we're talking roughly the 8th century BC. So, you know, nearly 800 years before the birth of uh, Christ or, or the, the common era, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so it's really ancient. You might be expecting it just starts at the beginning and it sort of trickles on towards the end. You get various things happening because it's an ancient sort of, um, you know, story that that might be quite simplistic it's not got that so the structure of the odyssey it's really um, key basically chops and changes you've got flashbacks you've got you know beginning story you've got different almost kind of cinematic ideas where you start off in one part of the world you suddenly go to a different part of the world entirely and then you go back to what this character has been doing before that and then you flip on so um, that's one of the things that makes it most engaging and means that a lot of people have uh, sort of rated it pretty highly over the last few thousand years 
And we talk about um, Homer writing or, or composing the Odyssey. Um, how, how was it composed? So it seems to have been likely that the um, the composition was definitely oral, um, O-R-A-L. So what that means is that uh, the person who created it um, or the group of people who created it um, created it by sort of telling it out loud and that when they were performing it, they were standing or sitting with an audience around them and the story was flowing out of them. Um, and this kind of explains one or two techniques um, that we're going to come on to. Brilliant. I mean, as as we know from when we studied uh, the Mycenaean world and we looked at Linear B tablets, because whilst it was written, whilst it was composed in the 8th century BC, um, Homer is telling the tale that actually happened some centuries before. The story is of Bronze Age Greece. And, and we studied that in Mycenae. When we looked at the, um, the, uh, the Linear B tablets, we realised that these people had a very simple way of writing, but it wasn't really set up for telling long tales. So that is further evidence to it being orally composed. Yeah. And the other thing to mention when we're talking about the Mycenaean world, of course, is that we looked at Troy as part of that Mycenae, Tyrans and Troy in that first chapter. <clears throat> and um, one of the things we said about Troy is this may have been where the Trojan War happened. So the Trojan War is largely f- most famous for being told uh, partly in the Iliad. Um, and that's the other one of the epics supposed to have been written by Homer. So that's where the link is. You've got this story of the, the War of Troy. And then the Odyssey, which follows on from the Iliad, is how Odysseus gets home from the War of Troy because he's one of the Greek heroes. Shall we dip into it then, Mr. Watkins, and start um, talking through the uh, the set books? Absolutely. So um, the first book that you study is book nine. Um, and this is Odysseus has found himself washed up ashore uh, amongst the Phaeacians. And um, the king of Phaeacia, Alcanus, uh, has welcomed Odysseus at a banquet. Uh, at this banquet, he, he displays very good xenia which we'll talk about in themes in a later chapter, but basically hospitality. He he wines and dines um, uh, his guest before he deigns to ask him who he is and where he's from. Um, but when he does when he does start to tell who he is and where he's from, Odysseus tells this tale of his adventure before he washed up ashore in Phaeacia. And this tale involves various adventures. Um would you like to start off with the first adventure that he comes to, Mr. Keane? The, the yeah, so is the first one. The Sikonis <clears throat> is the first one. So he's on his way back from uh, from Troy. They've won the battle. In fact, Odysseus is massively successful because he came up with the key idea of uh, using the wooden horse. If you don't know about that, then read up on that. You can search up on that. There's loads of stuff on that. And he was on his way. Um, and basically, they were so excited that they stop off. Um, and uh, they they land on an island. There's a lot of islands involved in this story. Um, and uh, there's a counterattack. There's a counterattack by a group of people called the Sicones. That's C-I-C-O-N-E-S. Um, and uh, they lose 72 people. Yeah. Um, and uh, they they obviously sort of get their things together. They get onto um, the ships again and end up on the land of the Lotus Eaters. Why don't you talk us through that one, Mr. Watkins? So, um, yeah, they have a, they suffer a storm and then they end up in the land of the Lotus Eaters. Um, here there are people who live on an island who, who feast on the lotus plant. And what it does is it causes a loss of memory. 
and um, th- three crew members uh, from Odysseus's crew, they do go ashore and they eat the fruit. Um, and Odysseus uses all his strength and bravery to drag the crew away. So, yeah, so they're, they're first sort of, yeah, their interaction with Odysseus is uh, drug eating memory loss. The next one, I have a feeling that uh, I'm going to get to uh, describe probably the most famous bit of the Odyssey now. So thank you, Mr. Watkins, for for letting (laughs) me do that, because that's the story of the Cyclops. And the word Cyclops means round eye. So it's got the same uh, cycle is the same as in the word bicycle. So two round things, two wheels. Uh, Cyclops means the round eye. And he's only got one eye and his name is Polyphemus. Now, if you can spell Polyphemus correctly, P-O-L-Y-P-H-E-M-U-S, then you'll be doing better than the majority of I would say of people who ever uh, read the Odyssey because um, it's very easy to, to get confused and spell it with a TH or, or whatever it might be, but it's a PH. Um, so Polyphemus. Um, Polyphemus' name actually means talked about a lot, which is, um, which is good. And uh, it's another guy on an island, except he's this kind of monster. Uh, they don't know that when they land on the island because uh, they just find a cave and they find a cave with enormous amounts of cheese. And let's be honest, Mr. Watkins, if you found a cave with lots of cheese in, what would your first instinct be? Where are the crackers? Exactly. So <clears throat> let's get the cheese. Let's stick it on the boats and go. Odysseus says no. It's Xenia. Okay, and we'll come back to Xenia. Yeah, but X-E-N-I-A. Remember that word. It's going to be really important. Xenia says, I've got to get gifts as well as taking stuff. Okay, we're going to get gifts um, and we're going to tell stories. That's what we do in this world. Okay, the guy who owns the cheese comes back. He's called Polyphemus. He's a cyclops. And he says, where have you come from? Who are you? Um, I'm feeling hungry. And Odysseus says, oh, I know what you mean. I've been looking at this cheese myself. Polyphemus says, no, I'd rather have one of you. So he grabs two of his men and basically crunches them up for his um, lunch. Um, the other men kind of slightly freaked <coughs> out by this, as, as you might imagine. Um, and all of a sudden, it turns out it's not going to go how they planned. No Ksenia going on here. Odysseus, at this point, has a plan, just like he did with the Trojan horse. This time, it's slightly uh, less about building large animals and slightly more about... Um, kind of uh, whittling down sticks um, and what he does is he says have some of this wine Polyphemus doesn't drink a lot of wine so he says oh, okay this tastes nice I'll have a bit of that he drinks so much he gets really drunk falls asleep and at this point um, Polyphemus uh, kind of uh, is, is is out for the count and Odysseus gets this big stick he whittles it down into a into a point um, and uh, Polyphemus um, really drunk um, says uh, what's your name and Odysseus has thought it through and he doesn't say my name's Odysseus he says my name is Utis okay and Utis in Greek means nobody okay everyone's like that's a bit weird you're not called nobody but he says well okay tell you what I'll uh, I'll give you a prize, um, nobody. I'll eat you last. That's your prize. Okay, he's planning to eat all of them. And at this point, falls asleep. Uh, uh, Polyphemus falls asleep. Odysseus uh, and his men grab the stick. They stick it in Polyphemus's eye. He can't see. He shouts out to all the Cyclopses, nobody's blinded me. Nobody's doing terrible things to me. And of course, his brothers, the other Cyclopses or Cyclopes, all wake up and they go, well, that's nice. Nobody's blinded as either. What, what's your problem? <laughs> if that's the case, then 
let's be honest, you just need to get help from the gods. If you've been, you know, if you've not been blinded, but you're upset, well, why are you telling us that? It's all very strange. Um, and they don't come to help. So the next morning he grabs on, he and his men grab on to the uh, undersides of, of uh, Polyphemus' sheep, because you're wondering where the, the cheese came from. It is sheep's cheese, glorious Greek sheep's cheese. It's very much recommended. Um, don't steal it off Cyclopses, though. That's a bad idea. Um, and he, they grab onto the bottom of uh, the sheeps. They get out. Polyphemus can't see where they are. He feels, he feels around with his hands. He can feel the sheep getting out. He can't feel the men. And they're out they get on the boats and of course they just sail away but before they sail away Odysseus shouts hey if you want to know who did it it's actually Odysseus I'm Odysseus um, son of Laertes um, of Ithaca so that's who did it to you and if you know anything about Zeus and curses and Poseidon you'll know that Polyphemus can then uh, curse Odysseus and he curses him and says right I hope you have a really horrible journey home and in fact my father is Poseidon so Poseidon the god of the sea is going to make sure you have a terrible journey so that's book nine. Mr. Watkins, on to book 10. So um, after that uh, terrible adventure, they end up um, sailing along and they come to a strange island. This is the island of Aeolus. And he's, 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 a, he's it's not made clear. You know, he's not described as a god. So we think we have to assume he's a mortal. He's king, he's a, but he's uh, the keeper of the winds. The gods have entrusted him with the job of looking after the world's winds. As soon as we <coughs> see his island, it's, we know supernatural things are taking place. It's surrounded by an unbroken golden wall. Um, and um, he has sons, he has many sons and daughters who, who sleep with each other. It's a strange, mysterious and suspect world. <coughs> um, when they arrive, uh, Aeolus Goodzenia, he, he hosts the men and he gives them, he gives Odysseus food and wine. And he gives him a gift. And the gift is he traps all the winds in a bag, uh, in an animal skin bag, um, sewn together with silver thread. And um, the only wind that he doesn't put in the bag is the wind that he needs to take him and his men home. Fantastic. Now, um, Odysseus potentially makes an error of leadership judgment here. He doesn't tell the men what's in the bag. Um, he guards it very closely himself and pulled along, blasted along by the winds. They travel very quickly towards Ithaca. They've all been searching for. Um, they travel for nine days and nights and, and Odysseus doesn't sleep the whole time. And eventually he, they see Ithaca. They can see they're tantalised by how close they are home. And he thinks, brilliant, we're so close to home. Now I can sleep. So he falls asleep. And at that moment... His men become suspicious and they question this bag and why is it that Odysseus gets all these treasures? And so they open this bag of wind and out come the world's winds, which blow them all around. And off they go, blasting back the whole journey they've come back to the island of Aeolus. Aeolus. Uh, this time round, they sort of knock on the door again of, of King Aeolus and they say, um, uh, really sorry. Um, thanks for your first offer of the winds. Can we can we try again, please? And now Aeolus is suspicious. He says, "This is ridiculous. I've literally given you everything you could need to get home, and yet here you are back here. The only way you could be that unlucky." And this is quite similar to the response of the cycle, the cycle, the cyclopes. The only way you could be this unlucky is if the gods have sent you back to me and who am I to to step in the way of the decisions of the gods so I'm sorry but um I'm not helping you out this time 
And so the men are the men are devastated. Um, and off they go. Their next adventure after the winds is the Lystragonians. Yeah, so the Lystragonians, massive, great, terrible people. Um, and uh, they have these enormous mountain-like men and women. Um, and basically, there is uh, a huge slaughter. Um, and uh, up till now, Odysseus has had quite a few boats with him. But mm. at this point, everybody on all the other boats gets slaughtered by the people who live there. Um, and they sort of spear them onto their spears like fish. And the only men who survive are the men on Odysseus's boat. Um, yeah, the island's got this sort of natural harbour, and um, most all the other ships, apart from Odysseus's, decide to moor up in this nice, safe, natural harbour. Safe, uh, they thought. Whereas Odysseus decides to moor his ship out his ship outside of the harbour. This meant that when the Lystragonians, these giant, ferocious, cannibalistic men, um, attack them. Um, the other men cannot escape. They're, they're easy prey. Uh, whereas Odysseus is safely outside, gets in his boat and flees. Now he's down to just one boat. And this one boat lands on the island of Circe. Yep. So, Would you like, um, why don't you talk us through Circe then, Mr. Watkins? I shall do. Um, so they arrive on the island. They're very suspicious at this point. They've had pretty bad experiences of, of exploring... Uh, domiciles on strange islands um but eventually they climb to a high point and they can see smoke in the distance so in the end they decide um after drawing lots to go and explore the house and this is where again you know this is so good leadership in that he he lets it go down to votes who's going to go and who's going to stay he's prepared to put himself on the line as, as, a, as a good leader but um half of the men led by eurylochus and one of the many characters in the odyssey whose name begins with e um and off they go to half the men go with Eurylochus to to the house of Circe, and the other half stay at the ships with Odysseus. Now, um, when they get there, um, they are offered food, which they take, and Circe has drugged the food, and this turns them into pigs. Um, Eurylochus doesn't eat the food; he, he's he's suspicious of the whole setup and doesn't go inside um, and he stays in human form and he travels back to Odysseus and there's lots of pathos in this scene and there's lots of weeping and, and, and Eurylochus showing how sad he is and Odysseus how sad he is that the men have been treated so savagely um, and explains to him what happens and he's too fretful too scared to go back to the house. Odysseus however uh, being the heroic leader is prepared to face danger and, and go and try and rescue his men from what can only be described as a witch. Um, whilst he's on his way, he meets up with the god Hermes, who has been sent to offer him um, not really a remedy, but an antidote, something he can take um, beforehand to stop Circe's um, drugs having any effect on him. And this is a little magic flower called um, Moly. Um, he also gives, uh, Hermes also gives Odysseus some instructions of, of how to act. He says, Circe, will, will, you, know, you need to um, take this drug, then you can take the food safely. You need to unsheathe your sword and you need to threaten her with a sword, at which point she will approach you for sex um, and you need to accept. And so that whole description of um, the, the, the commands, the, the advice that Hermes gives, 
we then hear all those lines repeated again, which is a nice example of the oral tradition, repeated lines. Um, uh, and that's when uh, Odysseus goes to the house and he does exactly as he was told. So when she tries to turn him into a pig, it doesn't affect doesn't affect him. She becomes much more friendly as Hermes advised. And then she um, turns the, his men back into humans. Um, they then spend a year relaxing on Circe's island. Um, when it's time for them to go, <coughs> Circe helps them with that as well. She helps them prepare for the next stage of their journey. Um, she gives advice um, how to that, that Tiresias, the blind prophet, is the man they need proceed unfortunately he's deceased so they'll have to go to the underworld to talk to him she tells him how to find the underworld and how and, and the correct sort of sacrifice and blood ritual to use to be able to speak to tiresias she helps him uh pack up uh, gives him some gifts and off they go now we don't read um the next books you know, if you want to read them that's brilliant and i'd recommend you do but Books 11 to 18 are not part of the GCC prescription. The next one we have to read is book 19. And Mr. Keane, do you want to tell us about Odysseus? Yes, absolutely. So by the time um, we get to book 19, Odysseus is now back on his home island, Ithaca, which is off the west coast um, of Greece. You want to look it up in an atlas. And he's on Ithaca um, and he's already spent kind of six books of the Odyssey, so a quarter of the Odyssey, sort of biding his time waiting because on his island, in his home, there are these suitors, that's S-U-I-T-O-R-S, suitors, um, and they are suitors, they're kind of like, they've turned up these men to try and marry his wife, um, because he they, they think he's dead, they're like, well, Penelope is a a powerful woman but at the time um, women were not really allowed to just sort of live on their own as as uh, leaders of a country so therefore they were like well you, you need a king to take over and sort of um, run your country and given that Odysseus is dead w- one of us had better marry you so who are you going to marry she says well just wait a minute because we're not sure Odysseus is dead and I'm not quite ready yet so they say well okay we'll wait while you're deciding what we'll do is we'll eat a huge amount of your uh, food we'll drink a lot of your wine um, and we'll have lots of loud arguments so in the, the last few books Odysseus has been sitting around watching them and as you can imagine he's not very impressed with the uh, behavior of the suitors not only do they want to marry his wife but also uh, they are treating people badly there they are kind of being rude they're kind of you know sticking their feet on the furniture all this sort of thing you might be wondering well hang on if Odysseus is there why don't they go oh my goodness it's Odysseus well <laughs> of course the gods are on Odysseus's side so uh, the, his favorite goddess and it's fair to say uh, he's probably her favorite mortal is the goddess Athena now you know Athena from um, the myth and religion section those of you who've been doing myth and religion um, and she's really popular. She's not just uh, popular in Athens. She's popular across the Greek world. And so therefore, if you're a favorite of, of uh, Athena, then you are a pretty good guy. Um, and she has turned him into an old man. Well, she hasn't. She's disguised him as an old man. Um, and so they all think he's just a beggar who's turned up. So he sits around getting abused by people. Um, he gets abused by, well, in the textbook, the word is maid. He gets uh, abused by, attacked by a maid. Um, maid is a sort of controversial word. Maybe slave might be closer to, to it. Um, there is um, 
a lot of debate uh, about whether um, we can really treat them as maids as if they're sort of you know employed they probably would have been um would have been slave girls and slaves um that were um indentured sort of you know forced if you like to um to, to, to work um, in the household um, but in any case um, all these people being horrible to him because they think he's just a beggar um, and at this point uh, Penelope is really nice to him so Penelope is um, lovely to him even though she thinks he's a beggar um, she basically does all she can for him to make him feel comfortable and she says why don't I get the old nurse that's uh, within the house so nurse or you you could say a nanny effectively um, to uh, to give you a bath so the nurse takes him off to give him a bath and she recognizes something so even though he's disguised as an old man he's got a scar from a boar hunt okay and those of you who uh will remember the uh that the dagger um from mycenae will be thinking hang on yeah boar hunting and sort of different types of hunting aha that links in nicely um yes there was a boar hunt he got gored by the by the uh, tusk um, of a boar. Therefore, he's got this recognisable scar. And she goes, oh, it's Odysseus. And at this point, uh, Odysseus, uh, we get a little um, kind of digression as to how he got the boar uh, scar, the boar hunt scar. Um, and Odysseus that says to Eurycleia, look, if you say anything, you are in trouble. Just keep quiet about it. Don't tell anybody who I am. But yes, you're right, it is me. Um there's a there's various things that go on towards the end of that book which are really interesting sort of pre sort of foreshadowing what's going to happen basically penelope sort of has this idea of um some sort of sort of dream that she's had odysseus says oh maybe that means your husband will return soon and everybody goes ah yes dramatic irony we're coming to the dramatic irony in a minute <laughs> um, and she says uh tell you what, what we'll do is I need to decide who I'm going to marry. We're going to set up a contest so that we can decide how we are going to, um, uh, you know, make out um, which uh, suitor is going to marry me. Okay. And we have book 20 kind of as a, uh, you don't read, but um, or it's not one of your set books rather. You're welcome to read it. Um, but it bridges over into the actual contest itself in book 21, which Mr. Watkins is going to um, start talking me through. Yeah, I'm going to do a quick blast now through books 21 and 22, if that's right, Mr. Keith. Um, Absolutely. Because they sort of continue the same storyline. Now, there's no way my quick recap can do any justice to the language of Homer here. So please do make sure you've read it. Um, you could easily be asked in the exam to pick apart what's happened. It is beautiful writing. Mr. Kin already mentioned it's so filmic. It's incredibly cinematic how it's described. You really see the action in those words. Um, and it is a really, really thrilling climax to the the the, the, the poem. But um, effectively, uh, Penelope announces this contest. And the idea is that um, they're going to line up 12 axes. It's quite hard to visualise, but if you imagine 12 axes, there's lots of debate about how they were set up. But um, possibly with the blades in the ground, their handles sticking up, they had holes in the handles for sticking a leather strap through so you could hold on to them. And then somebody had to uh, shoot an arrow all the way through. Now, that's really challenging. But what's even more challenging is the bow itself was a very, very big, powerful bow. It didn't have the string on it. You had to bend this bow before you could put the string on it. And the only man who could do that was the powerful Odysseus. Um, so the idea was that anyone who could string this bow and shoot the uh, arrow through would, would be a, a suitable uh, replacement for Odysseus as Penelope's wife. 
little does everyone know that actually Odysseus is there in the crowd, the, the beggar. Um, and that, again, is more this dramatic irony. Um, so um, Telemachus himself has a go. It looks like he can actually almost do it. But Odysseus gives him a little wink and says, you know, no, let's let this pan out properly, please. Which allows us, the audience, to realise how, you know, Telemachus's potential and his growth. Um, but anyway, Odysseus um, needs a bit of help to put his plan into action. Um, so he reveals his plan to some of his loyal slaves and he reveals his plan to Telemachus. Um now, on the on the, the the naughty side, on the suitors, we've got another character beginning with E, Eurymachus. So he's one of the naughty suitors um, who's been a terrible guest in the house of Penelope. Uh, he fails to string the bow. Then the other suitors um, uh, decide to have a break. Um, Odysseus has a go. Um, Telemachus, other people are saying, oh, you can't let the beggar have a go. But Telemachus says, no, no, we'll, we'll, let that, we'll let the beggar have a go. At this point, another person beginning with E, Eurycleia, Eurycleia, that is uh, the old maid, um, she nips out and locks the doors of the big palace room of the Megaron, the hall. She locks the doors so that any, any action that takes place in this room now, everyone's locked inside. Um, and so that's the scene we're set up with at the end of book 21. The suitors locked inside. Odysseus disguises the bow as the beggar manages to string the bow. And the it first thing he does... Oh, um, sorry to interrupt, Mr. Watkins. It ought to be mentioned that uh, Eurycleia was the one I was mentioning before when I said um, that the nurse gave him a bath. So yeah. she's a kind of recurring character. And um, <clears throat> clearly she knew him from well before. Yeah. So... Um, the first thing he does, having strung the bow, is kill Antinous, who is the leader of the suitors. Um, now, initially, they all think, oh, this beggar has managed to string the bow and he's accidentally fired off an arrow and killed Antinous. Um, at this point, he then d d loses his disguise and makes it clear, no, I am actually Odysseus. Um, Eurymachus, uh, one of the other suitors, pleads for his life and says don't you know it wasn't this was nothing to do with me we, were, we only did what Antinous told us to um unfortunately he too is slaughtered there was then a beautifully and gruesome massacre that's described um the suitors can't escape arrows are firing down on them spears are being thrown uh, Athene is of course helping out with Odysseus's side Telemachus is fighting alongside his father and they have the suitors sorry the servants who've stayed loyal to Odysseus are fighting alongside Telemachus and Odysseus, who are standing in the hearth and um, slaughtering the suitors. Um, once they've killed all the suitors, um, there's now a very a sort of a, a morally questionable section where um, the, any of the maids who are disloyal, who are sort of fraternising with the suitors, they are hanged. Um, and... Um, and there's a slave called Melanthius who also sided with the suitors. And he's he's given a very, very horrible uh, death, which is definitely worth a, a read. Uh, those slaves who were good and loyal to Odysseus are then spared. And that's the end of your, um, your prescribed reading. Good. So um, it, it, it's a long old text. Um, it and is. Very often 
you'll hear people use the word epic about it. Let's just have a quick go through what it means to be an epic, because people talk about an epic story, things like Harry Potter is an epic, or the Bible is an epic. Lord of the Rings is a really good example of something people will talk about as an epic. So why don't we take it in terms, Mr. Watkins, to go through mm -hmm. uh, the list that uh, people can have a look at if they get their textbook, the... Um, uh, the, the Homeric World section of the textbook and look at page 203 to 204. Um, and we can, um, obviously people can read that themselves, but why don't we see if we can come up with yeah. one or two um, examples um, of how it fits, how the Odyssey, the books that you read, um, fit in. First of all, it's long. It is indeed. It's 24 chapters long. Indeed, which, which, yeah. Considering it's a poem, uh, is a very long time. Uh, the next one is that it's, it has a central figure or hero. Who's the central figure? Well, obviously, it's Odysseus. I mean, at, at different times, there are people who come in a little bit more. So, for the for example, in the first four books, not some of your books, but still great books, um, Telemachus comes into uh, close um, scrutiny. Um, but for most of it, it's Odysseus. Next one is uh, it tells of a quest or a mission for the central figure. Yeah, and, very, and lots of little side missions, of course, take place. But the main mission for our hero, Odysseus, is to come home. And we'll look at the theme of Nostos in a later podcast. The next one is it features amazing deeds. Yeah, so um, if you think about what Odysseus does with the Cyclops, he, he creates this very cunning thing, manages to get out of a very sticky situation. If you think about um, the way that he stays alive all the way through, um, it, it's it's quite incredible that he manages to do what he does. So definitely amazing deeds. This is not just somebody who manages to wire a plug properly. Uh, this is somebody who goes through huge sort of uh, toil and kind of um, difficulties and comes out of it on the other side just about. Next one is it starts what, what's called in medias res in the middle of the story. Yeah. So, Mr. Um, Mr. King, you mentioned at the start that we don't begin at the start of the story. We actually start towards the end in terms of the chronology. We start with him. And when we first meet Odysseus, he's already been on the island um, with Calypso for seven years. Um, so the story starts, and it's not until he arrives at Alcanus's palace, as we meet him in chapter nine or book nine, that he then goes back, this flashback, and tells how he got to be where he was. And the story catches up with itself. His own narration catches up with where he and this is how I got to be here. And then the story continues with him from then. Um, the next feature is that the story has to have monsters, magic and gods. Oh, well, this is an easy one. Um, think about the Cyclops, one of the most iconic monsters in all of literature. Think about the Lystragonians. There, there are others dotted through the Odyssey, but uh, those are um, the Cyclops really is, is the key uh, monster. Uh, magic, of course, Circe um, and her uh, ma magic that turns his men into pigs, but also the moly that Hermes brings across. And that links us in, of course, to the gods. Hermes is a god that's really good to come up with if you're asked about the gods um, in an essay, because everyone's going to go, well, it's Athena. But if you can mention the key roles that uh, Hermes plays at times um, in the books that you read, um, it works really well. Yes, there is Athena. She disguises him. She manages to make him. And then, of course, you've got Poseidon. The gods are absolutely key to this, to, to not, yeah. not just to the plot line, but to the um, atmosphere of this whole thing. Next one is that it's set in lots of different places. 
Yeah, um, so unlike a, a Greek tragedy where we try to keep the unity of action and things all happening, the unity of place, things happening in one place, an epic will sweep across the, the known world, all across the Mediterranean. So uh, Odysseus travels to Agigia and Aeolia and Aia um, and Ithaca and various other places. Uh, finally, to be epic, it has to have certain literary features. For example, epithets and similes. And we're going to uh, talk about those now. Yeah, and that will lead us nicely into the first couple of yeah. um, descriptive techniques that we're going to talk about, and we'll link that into the rest. We've only got a couple of minutes more now, I think, yeah. uh, just to talk through one or two of the um, descriptive techniques um, in the composition. So epithets and similes, if I start with those, um, epithets yeah. are adjectives given, sort of descriptive phrases given to people. The very first line of book one of the Odyssey is andramoyennepemousa polytropon. Okay, now if your ancient Greek's a bit rusty or you've never done any, <laughs> um, you may not know that that means tell me, O muse, of the many sort of um, much cunning Odysseus. Literally, polytropon means kind of turning much. So he turns from side to side. He turns to one thing, then he turns to another. Polytropon there, the word meaning kind of much cunning or something like that. Um, that's an epithet. You get loads of epithets given right the way through. Um, you've got epithets not just for kind of Odysseus, not just for Athena, who's often described as grey-eyed or shining-eyed or um, flashing-eyed in some, in some translations. You've even got epithets of the guy who looks after the pigs and you know the the sort of um you know even the um even the suitors who may sometimes appear to be these kind of really evil nasty um characters um, they're sometimes called godlike so epithets are, are very very common in this sort of poetry um, and i mentioned similes similes i'm sure you will probably meet through your english literature you've probably been meeting those right the way back to um, primary school time it's worth just recapping what it is and basically it's just a comparison so if uh for example um there are, I mean, there are there are lots of similes um, in the Odyssey that you read, but uh, as soon as you get an example of, and it was like this. So, um, for example, let's take when Odysseus and his men plunge the uh, wooden stick into the Cyclops's eye, and the simile that crops up then is, it sounded like when somebody has a very hot um, iron that they've been um, tempering in the fire and then they plunge it into water. Mm. All of a sudden you've got that sound. And this is why podcasts uh, are good because you can actually make the sound. And then all of a sudden, as you're hearing that sound, you're used to from uh, you know people who are blacksmiths, people who made um, things out of metal, you compare that to the sound that the eye would have made as this hot um, steak that they've been warming in the fire went into the eye. There's also a really nice one in book 22 when um, the uh, the women of the household who have been fraternising when the suitors are hanged. Um, it, we, we, it describes, if, if, I, if I sort of abbreviate it, that they um, that they died like like doves caught in a snare. Yes. Yeah, and their feet twitch, don't they, at the end? It, yeah. um, like, like it shows us feet sort of how, really how vulnerable and dangerous they were, yet this barbaric act was happening to them. So the that point, leads the me really nicely... Sorry, go on, Mr. Watkins. It allows the audience to visualise or hear, but also allows the author to add a, a moral judgment to what's going on. You can, yeah. you can see the power or the vulnerability of a character. 
Great. That little um, simile about birds leads us nicely into the next one, which is um, gory detail. Um, it's not difficult to um, pick up a couple of bits of gory detail. Um, we've mentioned already the hanging of the maids at the end. You've got the death of Antinous with his blood coming out of his nostrils um, you've got the the stabbing out of the eye of the cyclops you've got lots and lots of examples of gory details yeah how about uh, dramatic irony next mr watkins you well, want to talk us yeah. about dramatic irony i'll be super quick about this one because we've mentioned it a couple of times already very yeah. simply dramatic irony is when one character or the audience knows something about what's going on that another character or other characters do not know so some information that's withheld by others. So it's very simply, when uh, Odysseus is in disguise, we know he's in disguise. A couple of the people he's revealed himself to know that he's in disguise, but the suitors and Penelope do not know that that is Odysseus. Absolutely. So... Um... Mm. Next one is detailed description. Um, it's got a couple of examples in the book, um, but another one um, that I was going to mention um, in terms of the detailed description was w one we've already mentioned, which is the story of the boar scar. So instead of saying he had a scar that Euryclea recognised, Homer says he had a scar, he got it from a boar, and then goes into an enormous amount of detail about the boar hunt where he got it. Okay, so that's looking out for things like that with detailed description. Fantastic. Um the next thing to talk about is the pace of the story. There are some sections of the poem where Homer really takes time, giving you lots and lots of detailed descriptions to build, to to show us oh something's going to happen here, to really suspend our expectations, what's going to happen next. And then other time, you know, and for example, that happens when he arrives on Polyphemus's island. Lots and lots of detail describing the setup in the cave when they arrive on Circe's home, the de detail describing the animals and their strange behaviour. Um, and then all of a sudden the action can really, and then sometimes the action can take books and books. You know, it can take whole books for us to get from one place to another. And then it can really speed up and, and the action can become very vivid and very um, dynamic, for example, in books 21 and 22. Mm. But there's some very sad scenes as well, aren't there? Yeah, so something um, really good use, um, a really good word to use is pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S, um, pathos. And it comes from the Greek word for suffering. Um, if we ever feel sorry for characters, <clears throat> then that is Homer creating uh, a sense of pathos. Um, you know, that there are lots of them, even Polyphemus, the Cyclops, having eaten people after what's happened to him, he's left on his own and uh, Homer creates pathos for him. Look out for that as you're reading through it. And if you start sort of feeling sorry for a character, that's called pathos. Use that word. Uh, yeah, a couple of more features. We're going to blast through these. Um, the use of myth or stories. Um, obviously, this whole thing is a myth, is a myth, is a story. But occasionally, Homer likes to have stories within a story where a character starts telling another story, a bit of background. And these are always done in the form of a flashback. So books nine and ten are stories within a story. This is Odysseus himself relating to the court of Alcanus, um, his own journey to that point. Um, when Penelope fetches the bow, she tells the story of how Pen of this has got the bow. Um, when um, uh, Antinous uh, tells the story of um, Eurytion, the uh, the centaur who drank too much. Um, so we get these little stories within a story. And the final thing to mention, this sort of literary technique you need to be able to discuss, is direct speech. Um, yeah, direct whenever... speech. Go on, Mr. Keane. 
D- direct speech works works really well in this uh, epic, I think. Um, so uh, as soon as somebody uh, gets their own voice, if you like, instead of Homer saying, and so I'll, Antinous said this to him, instead he says, and so Antinous spoke, Arcinous spoke and said, and then we get speech marks and the rest. All of a sudden it takes you in there and it kind of makes you imagine you were one of the people listening at that moment. It gives them the opportunity to speak in their own voice rather than Homer having to, to sort of report their words. Yeah. So in the exam, you will have <clears throat> most likely a six mark question, the little passage from the poem, and it'll you'll be asked, um, how does how has Homer, how has the author made this scene interesting, exciting, vivid, entertaining the for the reader? Um, and you need to give three points, make your point, and that might be detailed description, it might be direct speech, it might be pathos, gory detail. Quote the little tiny word, two, three, four, five words you want to talk about and explain how it achieves what you want it to have achieved. Yep. Right. So um, that will talk you through, I think, how to um, approach uh, some of the longer answers um, on the Odyssey and also from the plot point of view, um, some of the shorter ones. Um, Mm. It's the first of our um, podcast episodes on the Odyssey. We've got three more. they're not all going to be 45 minutes long um, because uh, getting through five books of the Odyssey and explaining that and also talking about literary techniques um, took some time. But thank you for staying with us for 45 minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Watkins. And sorry, I can't uh, shake your hand uh, in person, but it's been great sharing the, uh, the online uh, world with you for this uh, podcast. Thank you. Okay, there we go.